0: Inside the Post-Dispatch. Hey,
1: Liz. Hey, Beth. How are you? I'm doing well. I am very excited for today's episode. Yes, we both stayed up late last night to watch The Thing About Pam on NBC, the first episode of the Pam Hupp miniseries. Mm -hmm. And Robert Patrick is here with us today to talk about the case, the miniseries, and... um, Oh, all of the twists and turns of it. Yeah, and Robert Patrick, you know, over the life of this thing, more than a decade, has covered the Pam Hub case. It wasn't always known as the Pam Hub case, but now I think we can confidently say it is. Yes. Yeah, it was first
0: the Betsy Faria case and now it it is the
1: Pam Hub case.
0: So let's turn over to that. We are talking to Robert Patrick today, um, after the first episode of The Thing About Pam aired on NBC. Um, For this conversation, we're going to talk about the miniseries, obviously, but also two recent books about Pam Hupp, uh, which Robert reviewed in Sunday's paper. He also wrote uh, kind of a summary of the facts surrounding the case for Friday's Go! magazine, which ran along with Dan Neiman's review of the miniseries. Uh, Robert, it's really hard to write or talk about Pam Hupp because there's so much background information. You and I have talked about this before, and I've teased you that every story about Pam Hupp has like a paragraph of news and then, you know, six paragraphs of here is the twisted tale. Can you briefly summarize what happened?
2: So in 2011, a woman named Betsy Faria, who lived near Troy in Lincoln County, Missouri, was killed, stabbed 55 times. Her husband was arrested and convicted of the murder. He won a retrial, in part because his lawyer said that one of Betsy's friends, Pam Hupp, was a better suspect. So at retrial, he was acquitted. There was a kind of lukewarm reinvestigation of the case. Mm -hmm. And while that was going on, uh, Pam Hupp killed a guy named Louis Gumpenberger. This is 2016. And it turned out that prosecutors believed that this was all kind of a, an elaborate and very amateurish plot to implicate Russ Faria in the death of Lewis Gumpenberger and connect it kind of back to Betsy's death. Okay. And so uh, Pam entered an Alford, Alford plea to in Lewis's death, which basically says, I'm not going to say I'm guilty, but I'm going to say you have enough evidence to convict me. And she's in prison now. For life. For life. Yeah. Life without. Life without parole. And, uh, she is, has recently been charged with Betsy Faria's murder. It wasn't very brief, which proves your point.
0: It, it Well, <laughs> and as with a lot of things, the, the devil here is really in the details. There's a lot of twists and turns in the case that make it really compelling. Can you talk a little bit about how you first heard about the case and decided to cover it? Because you usually cover federal courts.
2: Sure. Um, at, yeah, at the time I was covering federal courts, uh, my boss... Called me on my way to work, and he Your said, "Your boss named Patrick Gowan. yeah,
0: <laughs> uh,
2: long time and uh, revered editor here. Hope he listens." Um, <laughs> so he called me, and he said, "You know, Fox has approached us. We had a we had a pretty close partnership with the local Fox affiliate at that point. Fox, affili- Fox called us, and they want us to kind of partner up on this case and." I don't know what they said, but here's what was really going on. Mm. There's a, there's a reporter named Chris Hayes who attended the first trial of Russ Faria and was alarmed at what he had seen. And he was reporting on it and saying, you know, they, the jurors weren't allowed to hear about Pam Hupp as a suspect. And I think his bosses were getting a little nervous about their potential exposure on the case. And like, maybe Chris is getting a little over his skis as the expression goes. So let's partner up on this and you guys can work together and, kind of get another set of eyes on this. And so that's what we did. And we just kind of worked together and he had already done a tremendous amount of research and interviews mm-hmm. and everything else and um and then you know the the two of us the Post Dispatch and Fox kind of you know put out a package on the case um that was you know a rather extensive TV broadcast and then uh, you know a lot of space in the Post Dispatch.
0: And this was before the retrial.
2: Yes, this was before, um, this was after Russ was convicted and before he won. It wasn't a full appeal, it was something called a Mooney motion, which was basically like, hey, there's this really extraordinary circumstance. And the uh, Court of Appeals for the Eastern District of Missouri said, you know, he needs another trial.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, and those motions had only been granted, what, three times in like state history? Yes. This was yes. the fourth it was, time?
2: It was very rare because, you know, normally the appeals process is kind of paper intensive and laborious and time consuming. And so that, you know, there was an appeal and then there was also this mooney motion.
0: You have talked to Pam Hupp. You haven't like had a sit down interview, but you've had a couple of phone interviews with her. Right. What was your impression of her at that time, you know, before the retrial
2: Well you know, it was really most of our interactions were kind of seeing each other in the courthouse or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um I mean I distinctly remember in advance of this package that we produced you know, I needed to ask her, did you kill Betsy? Right. Obviously, I, I have a distinct memory of being on some higher floor of the federal courthouse calling her on my cell phone as my battery is dwindling rapidly, uh, you know, trying to figure out how I'm going to ask this question. And what has always stayed with me is, you know, the the, an- the answer to did you kill Betsy was some variation of there's no evidence I did that. And I always think like if someone, particularly a reporter, asked me if I had killed somebody Then I would be like, you know, A, no. And B, if you like even hint at that,
0: I'll
1: be really upset.
2: I'll I'll be really upset. And also, I'll sick every lawyer that I can possibly find on you. Right. Like she's
1: essentially saying, prove it instead of no. it's It's like when
2: the cops, one of the initial interviews that the cops had with her, and she said, you know, she kind of stopped them and she said, by the way, it's trash day. So if you want to look through my trash, you better do it now. And you're like, what,
1: what's what's going right. on there? Who would you know? have that thought when their best friend has just been brutally murdered? Right.
2: I mean, it's, yeah. it's theoretically possible that maybe if you're, you know, some super real, you know, crime fiction fan or something that might occur to you or you're in the justice system somehow. And you're like, hey, you know, I know this is something that you guys do, but it's just I, for the average person to be like, hey, you might want to search my trash is... Strange,
1: strange, very strange. I was going to ask you to go back to that time when you were first working with Chris and with Fox. What was your take on Hub? Obviously, she was a figure throughout the first trial, but kind of a background figure, at least publicly it seemed, and then obviously emerged as a very central figure.
2: You know, I think some of my opinion was covered by the source of my information. I mean, the pro—you know—the prosecutor's office was never really chatty. Um, Leah Asky, now Leah Cheney, always thought that I was on. Uh, Joel Schwartz and Russ Faria's side in these in this thing you know so, and, so
0: and to interrupt you real quick Joel Schwartz is Russell Faria's attorney right okay. right
2: um, and so I had the transcript of the first t- trial I had all the evidence I had access to all the evidence through Joel Schwartz but I didn't have the prosecutor saying like well this is why we did what we did you know so I mean even after Russ was acquitted when people would talk to me about it I'm like I don't know who did it mm-hmm. you know there wasn't evidence that Russ did it. Russ had an alibi.
0: Russ that, had four? Right, four, four alibi eyes. witnesses, plus
2: like you know surveillance um, camera from stores documenting his trip down to his friend's house and his trip back, and he got you know two sandwiches from Arby's and everything else. And the time of death wasn't really, you know, the time of death had been kind of challenged by the prosecutors. I mean, Betsy was, was cold and stiff when the first EMS person arrived. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, pretty much tells you what's going on. But it wasn't like somebody said she died at X o'clock. And right. then you could say, you know, so I, I mean, at that point, it, it's just like, well, it w- there wasn't a lot of great evidence. Yeah. Um,
1: but, you know, Russ's story never really changed. Whereas we have this other, once you're aware of her in this story, Pam Pup, you cannot say the same of. Story changes quite a bit.
2: Right. and And you have to look at this, you know, by time, because... Before Louis Gumpenberger was killed, you know, so I've, you know, I'm You're I'm saying, I, I know, I don't know who did it. There were a lot of people that were saying, I think, I still think Russ did it. Mm-hmm. But then once Louis Gumpenberger is killed, oh, no, uh, sorry, let's go back. Before the second trial of Russ, you have this, this, you know, bizarre evolution in Pam Hupp's story, where, you know, so first trial, she says, I drove Betsy home from chemo, and, and we should point out that, that uh, Betsy Faria had terminal cancer. She yeah. was still undergoing chemo. She thought she was in remission and then found out shortly before this happened, maybe by a couple of months or a month, that it had not it was not in remission anymore. So she was going to chemo. Pam kind of inserted herself one night and said, "I want to you know, I'm going to drive you home." She drives her home from chemo, drops her off at the house. Um, this is her testimony from the first trial you know then I drove home uh, a lot of her whereabouts you know I don't I don't think Joel Schwartz was able to get too much into sort of the the conflicts at that point and he, and he wasn't allowed to get in front of the jury the fact that you know four maybe days before the murder Betsy had well let's just say there were some insurance documents that were mailed switching the beneficiary from uh, Russell Faria to Pam Hupp so Right. So all of a sudden Pam Hupp is the beneficiary of $150,000 in life insurance from Betsy if Betsy Faria dies. So we as we're coming as we're coming up on the second trial Pam keeps having these interviews with law enforcement where she's like, "Oh, I just remembered this." And I just remembered that, and it was almost like she wanted to bolster the case against Russ. I don't know if right. somebody told her it was weak or if she felt like it was weak or she was just like, "But I mean, you know, all of a sudden she's like, oh, by the way, uh, Betsy and I were having a, an intimate relationship and Russ found out and he threatened me.
1: Right. And, and then... Where previously they, she said she barely knew the man.
2: Right. You know, I, I ran I into met him a couple, a couple, of, couple times. of times. You right. think you would remember if right. someone had
1: threatened you um, over an intimate
2: relationship right. with their partner. And there was no indication at that point that, you know, I mean, Russ's Russ and Betsy's marriage had been troubled over the years, but things were better. And, and there was... I mean, this this relationship came out of the absolute blue. <laughs> Uh, and so then she says, oh, well, you know, there might have been there somebody there that night. You know, I just kind of have a feeling or something. And then she says, oh, I saw a car outside and the, and someone was kind of ducking down and I think it was Russ. Right. You right. know, so so she is, if you believe her, there's even more motive for Russ to have killed Betsy because he's mad about their relationship. And then she puts him there. She puts him outside the house shortly before she leaves and you know sometime before betsy's killed
0: and frankly in a situation that he according to the timeline provided by four alibi witnesses could not have been in. right yeah. so
2: it kind of lines up with one of the theories that the prosecution offered in the first trial she was she she told the jurors either you can believe that he got home killed his wife showered and cleaned up all the blood and somehow made all the clothes disappear magically
1: in like five minutes. Yeah. or maybe Although he maybe was he wearing the same outfit when he was arrested and interviewed at the police station that he's caught on surveillance, you know, gas station footage right. before he goes over to his friend's house. So the idea that you could stab someone fifty-five times and have no blood spatter right. on your clothes or your nails, your hair, you know, anything is impossible. She Seem- might have seeming.
2: She might have floated the idea that he that he stripped down,
1: right, and
2: killed her,
0: and then got dressed again, right. And she also basically said, that Leah asked the prosecutor, well, all of these alibi witnesses are lying, and this was right. a huge scheme and a game that they were playing right. that's an extension of this kind of role-playing game that they played on a regular basis anyway, which, like, that blows my mind that that was something a prosecutor would argue, it seems... Without so, evidence. Without any evidence, and so out of the realm of reality.
2: Right. That was option B for the jurors. Like, either you believe he killed her, he got home, killed her in, you know, five minutes, or you believe that his friends were involved and they kept his cell phone down in O'Fallon because that would give him, you know, kind of the cell phone tracking alibi while he snuck back up, killed his wife, drove back down, and then established this chain of, but my burgers at. Arby's or whatever, and right. drove home from there. So, and you know, it's just, it was just an odd situation to be sort of like either or. You take your pick as long as you go with guilty.
0: We've talked about just portions of this right now, and I, I do want to kind of move on to some other questions really quickly, but what about this case drives so much interest in it? I mean, we've been sitting here talking about it for several minutes, and we haven't even delved into some of the aspects of it, but what do you think makes it so compelling to readers?
2: Uh, I mean, it, there's just so many twists and turns in it, and you have this situation. You had this situation early on where you got a guy in prison, life without parole, right, who wasn't allowed to argue, like, hey, there's another suspect here that's a better suspect than me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're concerned about justice and things like that, and then you have just, I mean, the more people who died, the more people are like, you know, how much crazier and more deadly is this going to get?
0: And when you say more people who died, Lewis Gumpenberger, Pam Hupp is guilty of that. But there's also this question of Pam Hupp's mother, who died in 2013, Um, who fell from a nursing home balcony and the case was investigated and police in St. Louis County closed it pretty quickly as an accident. And then after Lewis Gumpenberger's death reopened the investigation, took another look at it and the cause of death was changed um, from accidental to undetermined. Undetermined, So Pam Hupp has not been charged with that, but Pam Hupp was the last person to see her mother alive Pam Hupp was the last person to see Betsy Faria alive, and now she is charged with Betsy Faria's death. And obviously, Pam Hupp was the last person to see Lewis Gumpenberger alive and, and did kill him.
1: Yeah, well, in at different turns, you know, she told, I believe, Joel Schwartz at one point, again, Russ Faria's attorney, in passing, that she her mother had just died of Alzheimer's. Which, when you know the real cause of death, is a very bizarre. I mean, she may have had dementia; she may have had Alzheimer's. Regardless, neither is what she died of. Right. Um, and so you have these very, again, conflicting stories from Pam Hub, who it's unclear if she can't keep her stories straight, or if they evolve or kind of turn on a dime based on who she's talking to or what she feels is necessary to share in the moment. Obviously, would not have been a smart thing to tell. Russ Faria's attorney at the time well my mom just died and it's pretty suspicious you know <laughs> we understand that but at the same time um, I can't imagine thinking of a parent dying and then that is how you share that news
2: well, why even bring it up? It doesn't it doesn't help that she made a comment to the police when they were asking her right. about a financial motive for Betsy's murder and she says well if I wanted money you know my my if my mother dies then I get $500,000 and I don't think I think that's you know i don't think that her mother i don't think there was five five hundred thousand dollar estate or you know pam's got brothers and sisters mm-hmm. So I, you know i don't think it ended up like that but but it doesn't help your case when you say i'd kill my mother if i wanted money
1: right or at I, one point she says her husband that there was a life insurance policy of, of some you know means uh, or a great number on her husband and uh I, this is at some point in i believe in a courtroom with joel schwartz and he kind of pushes her on it and says what are you saying and she says well, just that if I wanted money, I mean, that would be the easier, faster way. And he says, to kill your husband? Like, who thinks like that? But apparently Pam Up thinks like that.
2: Well, and, and, and this is all colored by her testimony over the years that she's had that, you know, she, she tripped at one point at work and kind of banged her head into a filing cabinet or something like that, which caused some back problems. She may or may not have some brain injury related to that she's testified that like her story changes depending on who's talking to her and how annoyed she is at at them Mm -hmm. because there was an issue uh betsy's daughters sued pam to try to get that money back and and her testimony during that trial was i mean that's where a lot of this comes from where Mm -hmm. she's like i was annoyed at them because they kept asking about the money
1: I think I would too if my mother had died and someone else got the life insurance money. But anyway, yeah, these are young. I mean, they're 17 and 21, I think, maybe, when their mother died. So one of them, a minor, the other, you know, very young college age. And um, I think it's very understandable why they would, after (laughs) losing their mother and their father, you Mm -hmm. know, who Russ Faria wasn't their biological father, but in many ways, you know, fulfilled that role, basically. Yeah. And, you know, then, you know, it's not even. It's about the money, but it's also just about the principle. Why should Pam Hupp have this life? Well, and she money?
2: she testified that she was that that she had set up a trust fund for the daughters. So the daughters and the rest of Betsy's family see that, and they're like, okay, where's the money? And I, I mean, I I always think about what one of Betsy's friends told me that they had a discussion mm-hmm. about creating some sort of document that would lay out how much money the girls would get at various milestones in their lives. Like mm-hmm. you need right. a call, you know. Here's you know, five thousand dollars this money when you buy a car, or here's X amount when you graduate from college. And I and I wonder if that was if that was on the way. You know, so she signs it over to Pam and says, I want this for the girls, and I'm gonna tell you how to spend it. Because if that document was created, that ties Pam's hands. Right. You know, that was the big problem with the civil trial that Leah and Mariah Day filed is that Betsy had not Betsy had said the money goes to Pam. And, and had
0: not left any instructions right. for how to spend and that money. And Betsy
2: was in the life insurance, the in, insurance industry, and she knew how to do it. Right. So mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. fact that she hadn't done the ju- hadn't done it, the judge says, well, you know, she she gave it to Pam essentially.
0: And there were basically four days between signing that document and when Betsy was right. murdered.
2: And some of her friends have testified that she was kind of reluctant to meet with um, Pam, you know, on the day she did to change that around. So you know, nobody right. knows what what went down.
1: Sure. But the trust you're talking about, which was established like right before Russ Faria's first trial, was then it was a revocable trust. Right. And was it revoked?
2: It yes. was dissolved shortly thereafter. <laughs> yeah.
0: So,
1: a very, you know, convenient, expedient way to, during trial, be able to not get in, wade into this territory and then very quickly still deprive uh, Betsy Faria's daughters of that money.
2: Right. Because at trial, you know, if you're talking about in Missouri, there needs to be direct connection in order to point at somebody else and say that's, that should be the, the true suspect. And, you know, one of the ways you might establish a direct connection is this is the last person to see the dead person alive. And or, then they stood to benefit. Here's, right. here's the financial motive. And, the, and, and if, you, if you're on the stand and you say, this money is going to the girls, then you're not, sta- you know, you are not benefiting. You know, that there is no financial benefit for this if you believe that that's truly where the money's going to go.
0: Right. But by the time of the second trial, that's not where the money went,
2: right? And and I think the the judge's ruling on that direct connection is certainly debatable. And
0: you, when you reviewed both books, uh, you said that there were some things that you saw in both of them that kind of surprised you, even though you've been covering this case for almost ten years now. What what were a couple of examples of those?
2: Well, one of the things was um, so before Pam found Lewis, she tried the same sh- sort of shtick. So, I, and we should tell people so. So, Pam, one of the one of the many things I think there's so you know, going back to your earlier question about why people are interested in this story, I mm-hmm. think there's a lot of really striking elements to this. And one of the things that has always, you know, I don't know, struck me, affected me, or something is the idea that that Pam was driving around St. Charles County just looking for someone who was gullible enough to get in her car. Right. And with no thought about where they came from or or you know, I always think about the prosecutors say she she cooked up this scheme where she says I'm a producer from you know I'm I'm Kathy Singer, a producer for Dateline, and, and there Kathy is Kathy Singer
0: and, is a real person, yes,
2: who watched the second trial and interviewed all these people and was in and out of the St. Louis area all the time. So I need to I need your help reenacting a nine one one call. So come to my house and you'll you know I'll pretend to call nine one one and you do this or that or the other thing. So she's approaching these random people. She went. You know, there was a guy who was cutting, cutting grass and he goes up to, she goes up to him and, and makes this pitch. And there was a woman who was sitting outside of her trailer, not far from the grass cutting guy. You know, that's a, that's a whole story <laughs> on its own, but you don't know if you're trying to, if you're trying to establish that this person was in cahoots with Russ Faria to kidnap you, you know, because that's what she told the cops is that, or that's what it sort of turned out to be kind of the version of the story is that Lewis Gumpenberger had a note in his pocket and and some money and it said, you know, here's what you do, you kidnap kidnap Pam to get Russ's money, right? right? So, what happens if when you're just driving around St. Charles County, you find somebody who just got off a plane from, you know, 5 years overseas or something and has no, you know, like you just it's it's like the dumbest possible way to try to find somebody well, to set somebody her else her up. Well,
1: she's driving her own car. You right. know, she's not yes. taking any steps so brazenly to conceal her real identity. And you know, I know that it, kind of what you're getting at. The note found in Gumpenberger's pocket. They right. were able to trace the paper back to a dollar store where she bought a knife. Also bought a knife. Right. Which Gumpenberger was allegedly Lewis Gumpenberger's, but was obviously staged by Pam Hupp in her car. Right. Because
2: because it was purchased at the same time as other things she had in her house. The money in his pocket was sequential to money that Pam and Mark Hupp had at their home
0: in in the dresser of the room where right. Pam Hupp shot Gumpenberger like it's I mean, just it's and, a, and most tragically of all, I think is that you were talking about what if she picked up somebody who had been out of the country for five years and had just gotten back but Lewis Gumpenberger was physically and probably mentally incapable of this type of crime. He had been in a car accident years before. He had a traumatic brain injury, had physical disabilities. He could not have done this Yeah. and would not have been the type of person that had this been actually a plot to get Russ's money back. Someone would pick. And that's part of the tragedy of this is Lewis Gumpenberger is like the quintessential random innocent victim mm-hmm. who believed that he was going to help a tv show great and get some money and the 911 call that pam Pup makes is bizarre on several levels including that pam Pup is so clearly reading off a script <laughs> and is a, t- is a terrible actor help. right um but then the, you hear lewis gumpenberger's basically his last words and I'm glad that the prosecutor, I don't believe they've ever released the entire 911 call, but they, they cut it off right before she actually shoots him. And he lands on a, a carpet square that she has cut out and laid in her hallway. Right. The level of thought on some parts of this crime is astounding. And at the same time, the level of inhumanity in this right. crime is is horrifying. And. We're so fascinated by it, and I will admit, I have been fascinated by it. Robert Patrick and I have had so many conversations about it as he laughed.
1: You texted him, right, when you were reading the book, Bone Deep? I did. I was
0: texting him while reading the book because there were parts of the book that I... Well, I found the book very frustrating in some ways. I wanted to know more. I think everyone wants to know more Mm -hmm. about the people in this case. And the book that I read, Bone Deep, did not necessarily provide that, even though it's written by... Russell Faria's defense attorney. And I understand that there may be reasons for that. We want to know more about Pam Hupp. We want to know more about Louis Gumpenberger. We want to know more about Betsy Faria. And the book doesn't really provide that. The miniseries, I think, it, we've only seen one episode, but it is not. Um, we should say, Robert, you've seen four
1: episodes, right?
2: I have seen parts of four. Okay. You know, I in, I didn't want to watch all four before this, because then I thought, well, it might it <laughs> might sort of mix things up about what I've seen versus other people,
0: right? Spoilers. And, and we are probably going to come back and talk about this more because I I know readers are interested in it. Frankly, I'm interested in it. Mm-hmm. And but the mini series is is bringing up more and more of these kind of moral issues about this case right. and how how bizarre Pam Huppit is has hidden some of the tragedy in this case in that Louis Gumpenberger's mother and his child aren't getting any of the profit from the miniseries. They've been public about that through their attorney. Um, Mariah Day has been posting on TikTok about, you know, the trauma that she suffered as a young girl in essentially losing her mother in a murder and also losing her father through this traumatic court process where she and her sister both testified against Russell Faria thinking that he had killed mm-hmm. their mother and this was the man who helped raise them.
2: And a- having been told, yes. I mean, you know, her latest TikTok is talking about, I mean, it actually responds to a comment that Russ left and, yes. she, and she's like, you don't, you know, you have to understand you got a 17 year old who has this traumatic traumatic experience of her mother being killed, and then she is pointed by prosecutors at you and said, he killed him. He killed her. He killed her. He killed her. He killed yeah, her.
1: He's the only one who could have done this.
2: And if you don't testify, we're going to subpoena, pe- subpoena you and force you to testify. You know, so like, right. I mean, I guess that's my, my thing about what I've seen about the series is that, you know, there is enough going on in this story that you don't need to,
1: you don't, you, don't need to,
2: you don't need to sensationalize it or dramatize it or tart it up with any gimmicks because on its own, it's insane. Yeah. You know, and so you got Pam running around slurping her soda all the time. And that, I guess that's her signature in this series. You know, and,
0: it, and she did apparently drink a lot of pops. soda, but you don't. <laughs>
2: but what does that have to do with killing people? Right. You know, and, and she walks right out of the gas station where she's filled it up. And makes that slurping sound like like the thing is empty, and you're like, okay, I see what you're doing here. You're, you're you've given Pam a signature sound, and that's slurping on a nearly empty soda. But the facts don't back it up, you know. And so why are you doing it in the first place? You don't need to do it for. her. I mean, you can you can introduce Pam in the way that a lot of people saw her before that first trial. You can say, here's a person who said. I don't know Russ that well. You know, Betsy was a great person. Everybody loved her. She had a million friends, everything else. I mean, she you gave, could...
0: She gave... She sent me her money so that I could help her daughters. Right.
2: I mean, you could you could look at this, you know, the first part of this series, you could present as if you were looking at the through the eyes of investigators. And then, you know, and then as it goes along, say, oh, aha, it's not what you thought based on the first mm-hmm. couple of episodes. I've never made a TV show, so... <laughs> You know, this is me kicking back and saying, I wouldn't do it that way. But you do have, there are victims here who are unhappy with this being played for laughs. Mm-hmm. And or it, it or,
0: definitely is being played for laughs. Right. Uh, several reviews that I've read, that we've read, have said, you know, it's supposed to be like a Fargo type of comedy. but. Fargo, despite saying it was based on a true story, was not. This is not only based on a true story, it's a very recent true story. And maybe it's because we're sitting here in St. Louis. Um, I happen to, you know, the the judge in the case who made the um, not guilty verdict in the retrial is a, a family acquaintance. So, I know people who are in deeply involved in this case, and it seems like this is another Hollywood. Oh, those people in the flyover country. And they, they slurp on their gas station sodas, they're all fat. And they well,
1: have much um, much larger people than they were in real life. Which uh, yes, that's a, I think sorry, is contributing to, to your point to right. you know very these gross stereotypes about Midwesterners. Um, you know, we have to kind of heighten all of these aspects of their characters to make them almost more cartoonish. It's a Very very strange choice.
2: And and maybe and I guess that's what Hollywood always does is they sort of you know they pick out these defining characteristics and really emphasize them. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you've got an actress who is putting on. Uh, NBC doesn't like people to use the word fat suit body prosthetics but you know when you are a, when you are putting on body prosthetics then you have to you have to ask yourself like why are we doing why are we adding weight
0: right because they these did add weight. they did
2: a you know yeah. i mean you know Pam lost a lot of weight when she was in um in jail. But, you know, she I don't think she was as heavy as they're making her out to seem and then you, you know, and you're like maybe uh, you know, Renee Zellweger can be involved in this and she doesn't have to play this person and put on this outfit.
1: Yeah, I think that's where again it kind of, you know, the the choice if you're going to say okay, we're going to heighten this, we're going to change the bodies of the people involved in this story. I think you cast people who already inhabit those bodies, right. who are able to live in them in a natural way, which is absolutely not what Renee right. Zellweger is doing right. in the series. And that's not a, a knock on her. It's knock on, you know, kind of the larger choice.
2: Right. I mean, if she wanted to play a, a main character, she could have played the prosecutor and, and made the prosecutor a more central role because their body types are similar. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there is nothing, you know, it's, it's like, I mean, there are plenty of, of aspiring actors who match the body types of these people that would be, that would welcome the opportunity. But Renee Zellweger is going to attract a lot more attention to this because people are like, what that's Renee Zellweger. She doesn't look anything like Renee. She doesn't look anything like Renee.
0: Actually a a reader, Denise Gibbs asked us, um, do you think Renee Zellweger is playing her part well in portraying Pam Hupp? And I, a lot has been said about maybe her, her voice Mm. and the acting itself instead of the body prosthetics and things like that.
2: I mean, I, I read something about, and maybe it was something that Dan had written about her struggle in finding, in capturing Pam's accent, mm-hmm. you know, because it is not, you know, it's not distinctly one place or the other. Um, and maybe that's because she lived in Florida and, you know, da da da. I mean, I, you know, Pam was kind of a cipher to the public through a lot of this thing. She's never really talked a ton. I mean, even when Chris Hayes was talking to her, she's talking through a door. Right. You know, she's. I see her coming and going. I see her sitting in court, but she doesn't want to talk to me. So you know, a lot of the stuff in there is factual. I mean, you'll see in upcoming episodes something that she does to her daughter that's very. You know, you you, they're going to use that probably to illustrate how focused on money that she is. You know, so so it it. I mean, I don't think it's not, it's not it's similar to Pam. Uh, but again, with those. Certain characteristics emphasized. Um, So, I mean, it's not. I'm not knocking her performance or or her acting. Renee Zellweger's. I'm just saying that you don't need to. You don't need to tart it up.
0: And she was also an executive producer on the show, so she has a lot more involvement and I think responsibility, frankly, than some actresses might might have. Yeah, it is fascinating to me to see the transformation of all of the actors. I mean, I'm familiar with Judy Greer, but I'm not. She's unrecognizable. I didn't realize who she was until she started talking, and then I was like, oh, wait, I know who that is. So that was that was kind of interesting as I watched the show. I will say, as a Midwesterner, 9 o'clock is really late. That's past <laughs> my bedtime.
1: See, my husband and I watched a movie after, so it oh. wasn't the time that was uh, in my way, but I just... I think my big takeaway from the first episode was how jarring the structure and tone was. Mm -hmm. So for folks who haven't watched it yet, or if you have, maybe you agree, maybe you disagree, Um, there is narration from Keith Morrison, who's obviously... I knew we were
2: going to talk about that. We have to talk about
1: that. So I was like texting friends, you know, as we're watching this live together. And one of my friends, I think, said it best. She was like, what is this Boris Karloff Grinch narration? Like, this is so (laughs) jarring that we have, you know, Keith Morrison, who... You know, all credit due, he has a great voice for television uh, and he does a great job with the narration. But we, I think, are not used to that kind of a narration structure in true crime TV shows that are these ripped from the headlines, excuse me, adaptations. And it makes it feel like a very high, expensive, stylized episode of Dateline. It's very, very jarring to me. I think if you had it at the beginning to establish that could be one thing, but it is carried through basically the whole first episode. It took Um, me
0: 12 minutes to be like, oh God, (laughs) why are they making this choice? And And it's like, show don't
1: tell, you know, I mean, I don't need Keith Morrison, you know, walking me through every step of this backstory and kind of, you know, creating bookends to scenes, let the story be the story. And I think there's a kind of a love or hate
0: relationship with Keith, not, I hate to say this, but with Keith Morrison's voice and the mm-hmm. narration
1: style, some people on Twitter seem to love it. Other people on Twitter were like, no. I think right. it's so effective in the recreation, you know, in used in Dateline episodes where there are, you know, actors, not Renee Zellweger, who are recreating scenes. But when it's Renee Zellweger, it's very jarring. Mm-hmm. Again, I think that adaptation aspect of it, that's not so much a news program, but it is truly an entertainment program. It really... It was very strange to me. It, it, it was hard for me to immerse myself in the episode with this structure. And then tone, which we've kind of already touched on, you know, the Russ Faria scenes are mostly very dramatic, especially in this first episode. Yes. He's, he's sobbing as he finds his wife and he's on nine one one. Right. He's.
0: He's sobbing again as the police are interviewing him. and and the police are the book makes it clear. Our coverage has made it clear the investigation of this case was botched. And Russell Faria actually won or won a settlement in a lawsuit, alleging that the investigation was mishandled. I think it's going to become clear as readers watch more how much it was. Mishandled. yeah,
1: absolutely. And the only to me at least um or my take was that the only scene that was acted for real comedy with Russ in this first episode, was that uh, Judy Greer, who's playing the uh, prosecutor, uh, asks one of the investigators, you know, did you read him his Miranda rights? And this is three, four, five hours into investigating, mm-hmm. or questioning, really, Russ Faria. And the guy is like, oh, yeah, I totally did that. And then, like, runs <laughs> back to the interview room and really quickly reads him the Miranda rights. And Russ Faria is like, do I need a lawyer? Because when you hear those, you know, we are, if you're not super familiar with your rights or with laws, that is such a touchstone in, in media and in mm-hmm. culture for, "Oh, I need a lawyer to not have read him that after hours of questioning, but I couldn't laugh at it, even though we're, you know this is the police bumbling because the results of that led to a wrongful conviction, so right it, it is not funny right. I think I, I'm not an attorney, this is not legal advice, but I have heard <laughs> if you
0: ever hear a Miranda warning get read to you, don't say anything else just don't talk
2: right and and, and he sat for hours and hours and hours of interviews and answered all their questions and denied it repeatedly. And they're mm-hmm. saying, you know, they're, they're bringing in his religious faith and saying, you know, God would want you to come clean and everything else. And, you know, the whole time he's like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I mean, he thought we haven't discussed the fact that he comes in and he thinks she committed suicide because she had talked about it before and he saw a knife and cuts on her wrists mm-hmm. and, you know, Everything else. So I think that's what you know. That's what initially pointed people, pointed the investigators at him. You've got this perception that the spouse always does it,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that's compo- compounded by you know his nine one one call, which they thought was over the top, and then his identification of his wife as as dying of suicide instead of you know fifty five stab wounds or something. So they were, they were already started down this road,
0: and they just kept going. Right.
2: Um jumping back to Keith Morrison for a minute. Yeah. I mean I th- I love him on Date- Dateline. Uh he he uses that same voice in real life, believe it or not. Um <laughs> It's but, a great voice. But it is it is jarring in this. And I don't know, you know, I don't know how you do it. Do you have a narrator who plays it straighter? Do you need a narrator? I mean, I feel like a lot of times TV is sort of dumbing it down a little bit and kind of leading mm-hmm. you down the path. because they don't want anybody to say like i don't wait what what happened what's what's going on right but uh, you know if they if they treated their audiences a little bit more intelligent they wouldn't necessarily need to do that
0: and dan neiman actually wrote in his review that the the show is swimming in condescension it showers in condescension he's he writes and another review uh from the hollywood reporter says that it The show treats middle America with sneering voyeurism. Uh, And it brings up another show, which I'm going to probably spring this on Robert, but uh, (laughs) The Act, which is based on a case out of Springfield, Missouri, where a woman was uh, faking her daughter's illness. And then her her daughter kind of escapes, meets a a man. Gypsy Rose. Gypsy Rose. And then the, the daughter and the man the mother and 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 run off to Michigan I think it was and then are arrested shortly thereafter but I I watched that show and I, I loved it um mm-hmm. but it treats the Midwest as a setting and not as a joke yeah. and I think that's another point the Hollywood reporter review makes and it it does seem like, This show is treating the area more as a joke than as just the setting. And part of this story is that it happened in middle America. It happened in Lincoln County. There aren't many homicides in Lincoln County, and there's Mm -hmm. definitely not many homicides like Betsy Faria's in that area. But you don't have to be so Hollywood about it.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I think that's a lot of that. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but a lot of the fascination, or at least for me personally, that I think more broadly is that we don't know a ton about pam Hupp's background outside Mm -hmm. of the bullet points that you could somewhat easily learn about a lot of people where she went to high school what she was like what former coworkers say about her what her job was yeah some weird things and like you know allegations that she'd left jobs because of you know forging signatures i mean very uh, comparatively light criminal history uh to what would come and so we're fascinated by like what kind what what happened in her life that led her down this path you know it, ultimately it seems like all of these crimes well two of them at least were motivated by money and one was motivated to deflect blame on her um but still to keep the money <laughs> i mean you know. right and there are other things in her life that you know there are stories from her life that um paint a similar picture of perhaps greed of putting money before personal relationships family relationships um and maybe it's that straightforward maybe nothing has to happen to you that you were like that but it's really hard for for me to imagine you know murdering my mom for any amount of money so who is that person murdering my alleged best friend over money is dark stuff and i don't know that we'll ever really like get to the bone of who she is but i mean yeah
2: well and maybe this changes as the series goes on but but betsy free is incredibly one-dimensional in this i mean she's just She's just there
0: she's just in the car. Oh yeah, Pam will take me home. No problem. Yeah.
2: It's like she's, it's like she's barely, barely visible in this thing. And, right. and you know, everybody talks, her daughter Mariah has been talking about, about the way she was and how lively she was and like the life of the party and everything else. And she owned a, a DJ friends. business.
0: That was, right. it was literally her job to, uh, you know, have a party and she apparently did it really well. And, and I think that is a lot of what Mariah is trying to say on TikTok is there's so much more here to my mom than the way that she died. And right. I, my heart goes out to that i can i can see often how you know the the victim gets turned into just the victim that's all they are and right. I, I agree i think the miniseries has done that
2: i mean i you know the the relatives of the people that were killed here might have been unhappy no matter what was you know no matter how this was done whether it's because they don't share in the profits or because they don't want this brought up and sort of reliving put out. that trauma right um but it certainly doesn't help if they feel like you know their their loved ones aren't being portrayed very well and and, and i'm really ugh, i'm really worried about how Lewis gumpenberger is going to be portrayed yeah. you know because of his mental and physical disabilities like you know if you're doing that if you're doing that to the the regular cast of characters like i, I ugh.
1: again yeah, the tone of this thing is so much of what makes it to me Upsetting to watch so going from we talked about earlier the scene with Russ Freya and the police station and how aside from the, you know, very stock bumbling detective writing um, It's pretty much played dramatically. I would not say that any of the scenes I've seen with Renee Zellweger so far are played purely dramatically There is a you know, it's played with dark comedy Mm -hmm. Um, There's a, a jump where Russell's being questioned at essentially at the station and it cuts to a very bizarre shot of Renee Zellweger as Pam Hupp ironing dollar bills Um, and then she stuffs them in a piggy bank with it says Pam's you know but the s in Pam's is backwards I thought it said Paris I couldn't quite see it oh is it supposed to say Paris I
2: I thought it was Paris at first I think it's Pam's
1: and then the dollar signs are also backwards so I'm like are we supposed to infer that this is like a childhood piggy bank or that she can't write like it's such a bizarre scene And I just, again, it's like juxtaposing this man who was, you know, this is a wrongful conviction. uh, And these police are railroading him into, despite unwavering testimony that he did not do this, that is played mostly dramatic. And then what do we do with this cut where she's like... Ironing money and talking about right. how much a love sack costs and how you know Betsy Faria's daughters must be well taken care of if their grandmother can afford an expensive beanbag chair for them. It's <laughs> it's unhinged, honestly. The 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 jumps in tone that we experience in this first yeah, episode. I, well,
0: I, I agree. It's so over the top. I wonder how they're going to handle some of what will be, frankly, pretty sensitive stuff coming up. Right. And I we don't know how far they're going to go. I mean, Lewis Gumpenberger's death is the only one that Pam Hupp has been. Uh, convicted of, basically, or right. uh, pleaded guilty to. So, it, it's the one that she definitely did. Um, but how are they going to handle the rest of this?
2: I mean, the, going back to a couple of things we've talked about before, the real strength that you could have in a in a limited series like this is that you can you can really go deep on some of these issues because mm-hmm. in a, like you said before, in a newspaper article, so much of it is background in the Dateline episodes that have been done to date and I think they've done you know they've done as many as the John Benet Ramsey case and Mm -hmm. these you know and and OJ right so it's always you need a two hour Dateline and most of it is rehash but you've got this limited series and you could really get into this and you could really kind of I mean there's a lot of true crime stuff out there that really teases it out and, Mm -hmm. and you know makes it a mystery but we've got Pam Hupp as the villain from the very beginning yeah um you know, so we're we're just we're throwing that opportunity away.
0: Well, we've talked about this for quite a while, and we really appreciate you coming in. Sure, uh, thank you so much. My pleasure. I
1: I think we are planning on having another podcast episode. We'll have to talk about when that will be. Yeah. Um, I think at the conclusion, honestly, of this series. You know, again, we talked earlier about uh, Betsy Freya's daughter Mariah Day being very outspoken on TikTok about mm. how this is ex- affecting her. And what her thoughts are on it and something she's mentioned is that early on in the series announcement there was discussion of well this is really going to highlight you know put a spotlight on wrongful convictions hmm. but she hasn't felt like that narrative has been centered fr- in, a, in a front-facing way in interviews she has seen with actors on the show oh. so i will be curious after seeing all six episodes what how, where the chips fall and how much of the story is Truly, on spotlighting wrongful convictions and how much of it is sensationalizing the the crimes of Pam Hupp. Yeah,
2: right. And how do you how do you treat Betsy's death? Because Pam's only been charged. I mean, you know, her mom's death too, never been charged with that. So, but, like, right. that's yeah, that's a minefield, maybe.
1: So we well, have to have you. Sorry, Beth. No, <laughs> go ahead. I was I was about to say uh, we have to have you back to discuss that once the series has perhaps concluded.
2: Sounds good. I'll be watching.
1: Thank you very much, and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.